This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. We really are getting to the point where we can affordably own enough computing power to replicate the human brain's computing power. And the pieces are just going to come together inevitably, sort of like the airplane did. People are just going to push on it until they find the configuration that gives us a human brain in a box. Welcome to another episode of Conspiracy Unlimited Plus, and as always, thank you to all of my premium subscribers for your ongoing support. Marshall Breen is most widely known as the founder of HowStuffWorks.com, an award-winning website that offers clear, objective, and easy-to-understand explanations of how the world around us actually works. The site, which he created as a hobby in 1998 and took through several rounds of venture funding, totaling approximately $8 million, was purchased for $250 million by Discovery Communications in 2007. Marshall's a well-known public speaker with the ability to deliver complex material in a way that's easily understood by audiences of all types. He's a regular guest on radio and television programs nationwide. In 2008 and 2009, he was the host of the National Geographic Channel's Factory Floor with Marshall Brain, a series of one-hour factory tours taking the viewer on a journey into the world of product design, engineering, and manufacturing. He's also the author of more than two dozen books, as well as a number of widely known web publications, including How to Make a Million Dollars, Robotic Nation, and MANA. His latest book is The Doomsday Book, which focuses on the science behind 25 of humanity's most imminent threats. Hey Marshall, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? It's a great day here in North Carolina. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but I have to ask, what a fabulous name you have, Marshall Brain. Is that a, a, a nom de plume or is that your actual given and family name? No, my parents uh, are from Ohio. And if you go to Ohio, there's still a brain lumber company that was formed by my like great, great, great grandfather. So it is a legitimate... <laughs> A legitimate name. It's on my driver's license. It's it's just been a funny thing. It was not a good name to have in high school. Now I have to ask you about your website, HowStuffWorks.com. What an internet sensation. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that all got started way back when? So I'm kind of a compulsive writer. Uh, like I write every day. And I don't feel right if I, if I don't do some kind of writing. So HowStuffWorks started with me writing articles about how stuff works because it seemed like an an interesting thing to me. And especially I thought it would have been cool to have it when I was a teenager because a lot of times it's hard to find it. Well, at least when I was a teenager, it was hard to find accessible stuff on how different things worked. And so I just sort of, Uh, You know, I got the URL and I sort of wrote one article a weekend and 
and really no one cared. <laughs> so, you know, I would write an article and this is what would happen today as well. You write an article and you put it on the web and no one reads it, right? And so then I wrote another one. Just and and I did it every weekend be, more because I enjoyed the process and I enjoyed what I was learning. And after about 6 months it started to get an audience. The people in particular somebody famous mentioned it on a, you know, on a site and that brought some traffic and then it kind of started growing from there. It it just appealed to a certain segment of the population, right? People who like Discovery Channel or Popular Science Magazine or, you know, National Geographic. Those kind of people are curious and they would find the site and they really enjoyed it. And so it just, you know, from that little seed, it just grew and grew and grew. Were you always interested in science and technology, even as a child? I had a father who was a tinkerer, and he sort of instilled in me this idea that you could build things with your own hands. Uh, I can remember as a kid, he built us like a bubble machine. This was before you could buy them at Walmart. And uh, he built our garage door opener, and he built his own stereo and, and things like that. So he sort of transmitted to me this interest in, in building things or taking things apart or reusing things. And uh, there's probably a genetic component as well. That's sort of how that curiosity or interest got started. And then, you know, I got a degree in electrical engineering and I really enjoy technology from that perspective as well. How involved are you now with How Stuff Works? And for example, the podcast, I understand, gets something like 35 million downloads a month. Yeah, the podcasts uh, are are a phenomenon of their own and, and an amazing thing. I don't have any formal attachment to How Stuff Works any longer. I teach at a university called North Carolina State University now and live a much quieter life. Uh, as a result. So it, uh, it was, I think I was involved for 12 years and then it was time to do something else. So let's talk about your latest project, the Doomsday Book, the science behind humanity's greatest threats. I want to talk about the potential threat of artificial intelligence when and if robots or AI achieves greater intelligence than the human brain, then we're all in trouble. Why do you think AI could pose such a threat? Well, there's there's different levels of AI, right? There's, uh, you know, if if I talk to Alexa or Siri, that is a form of artificial intelligence. There's a number of things that we see around us now that that involve artificial intelligence, either obviously or behind the scenes. And that can seem somewhat benign because no one's really getting pushed out of their job or experience any existential threat because of Alexa. But you, the next level up is when AI starts actually competing with human beings for jobs and starts to really impact the job market in that way. And then the next level up is what you're thinking of, I believe, which is, you know, general intelligence embodied inside a computer where it can think and, uh, you know, basically do anything that a human being can do. And then you get the level beyond that is most commonly known as the singularity, where that general intelligence is able to start improving itself. Essentially, it can write its own software and improve itself, and it becomes you know, twice as good as a human being, and then four times as good as a human being, and eventually just becomes so superior to human beings that we become irrelevant compared to its capabilities. And so there's these levels we're about to be impacted by the starts taking jobs thing. And that is going to be its own level of trauma. 
so you, you pick where, you know, like in that strata, where do you want to, where do you want to focus? Let's begin with the robotic revolution, or sometimes referred to as the fourth industrial revolution, and and we're in it now. I've heard some pretty harrowing figures in terms of permanent job loss, something like maybe 60 million in North America alone, when you consider, for example, just the driverless car. One in five jobs are tied to driving. Let's start there. Right, so you're making an excellent point. The, the thing, like the tip of the spear that's probably going to hit us with, with strong impact first is this whole self-driving car technology and in particular self-driving trucks. Because in the United States, there's about a million and a half people who drive 18 wheelers and they make a good living doing that. That's a middle class job. It has generally, it has a, a good pay scale it has medical benefits, things like that. It's a solid position to get yourself into. And then there's all the delivery drivers for FedEx and UPS and you know all the other delivery companies. And then there's the Uber slash taxi slash Lyft side of the equation. So you're right. There's an immense number of jobs tied up with humans sitting in the driver's seat. And once you have self-driving technology, it's going to be, especially in the trucking industry, it's going to be a very rapid transition over because a self-driving truck will be better than a human-driven truck in 10 different ways. Like It, it just makes so much economic sense to flip over that it, it will happen. And then you ask, well, what happens to those 1.5 million people? They get ejected out of their middle-class jobs and then you know the economy isn't right now it's not creating jobs and it's especially not very good at creating middle-class jobs and in a pandemic it's shedding jobs and you know that 1.5 million people is a is a you know reasonable chunk of the of the workforce in America and they're gonna be you know, unless we as a society start to think about this, they're going to just be left high and dry. And it really is uncomfortable to ponder. You Like, you, you've picked an excellent example. And then you think about, like, the construction industry has six, seven million people in it, and a lot of that could be automated. The restaurant industry, the retail industry, like a Walmart can employ hundreds of people and those are not complicated things that are getting done. A cashier or a person who restocks shelves or someone sweeping the floor or bringing in carts. You know, the, the things that happen in a Walmart are not complex and Walmart happens to be the largest employer in the United States. So it, it just, if once that snowball gets rolling, it is going to grow big fast, and it's going to impact millions of people where it hurts the most. I think most people are seeing it right now. A, a perfect example would be McDonald's. Maybe five years ago, you might have five, six people across the front of the counter per shift taking orders and so forth. Now, there may be two. And I heard in Germany there is a McDonald's that is entirely automated. That includes the deep fry and flipping burgers and everything. So we're seeing it come wash ashore now. Right. McDonald's uh, has installed a lot of kiosks. And in some restaurants, that's pretty much the only way to order. It's just, you know, assumed you'll walk up to a big uh, flat panel display and, and punch your buttons and get your order and once you've done it once, it's actually a better experience than talking to a person. It, you know, you get a better selection of what exactly you want, and you get better delivery on your order. And for McDonald's, it costs essentially nothing to install that kiosk compared to hiring the employee. And we've seen this before, like airports. You used to go up to the counter to check in. And now everybody checks in at the airport through a kiosk. And, you know, it, we, it just becomes normal. But we don't see the, the number of people that are getting 
unemployed by that. And, you know, automatic teller machines, ATMs, they have done the same thing at banks. So it it's going to just wash through the whole system and take out millions of jobs eventually. And it's not just the low-skill jobs. You mentioned construction. How close are we to 3D printing houses and bridges, for example? <laughs> well, we are actually 3D printing houses now. The, that has been in process for 10 years, but I was seeing an article last week that there's a, a house in America now that's for sale for $300,000. It's you know considered to be a completely legitimate, normal, middle-class house that happens to cost half as much to manufacture, and it takes a lot less time. And you you get rid of the all the different tradespeople that are that are involved in the normal construction of a house. There whether you go that route and you 3D print or you just take the kind of tasks in a normal construction process, like nailing shingles on a roof or putting bricks in stacks to make a wall or painting and hanging sheetrock. There, there's just a lot of stuff in house construction that is not complicated. And what's been holding us back is vision systems. We haven't had vision systems because we didn't have the computing power. But as, uh, like, as computers just get mind-blowingly powerful, we can actually create a block of computing power that's inexpensive enough that it can replicate a lot of what the human vision system is doing. And once we get that whole thing figured out and we have artificial vision systems that are either close to human or, you know, in a special area like shingle putting on, you know, it, it can do that vision task efficiently, it, that's what's really going to uncork the bottle. So I guess it would be fair to say then if, if a job can be replaced, if someone can be replaced by a robot from a, a, a barber down to a sous chef, a dentist, they will be. That is pretty much inevitable because a robot has implicit advantages over the comparable human worker. You know, doesn't get sick, doesn't get drunk, doesn't make mistakes like a human can make when they're tired, for example, doesn't want, you know, a human wants to have reasonable hours and work-life balance and a robot's happy to work 24 by seven. And, you know, you take that list of advantages and humans can't compete. And, and you're right. It, it, just about any job will eventually be roboticized. There, but there will be a, a set that are much easier and then kind of the middle tier and then finally the, the you know, most complicated tasks will get phased out. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So you were mentioning earlier, what are we going to do with these tens of millions of permanently displaced workers? And I'm wondering, you know, the COVID-19 has provided an opportunity to send up this trial balloon for universal basic income. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that COVID-19 isn't real, but it has provided an opportunity to maybe beta test a number of things. And one of those is a universal income. What do you think? Well, you are exactly right in the respect that it has shown us what it's like to lose tens of millions of jobs essentially overnight and also it has shown us how we respond to that and right now the response has not been particularly good because you know just one thing to look at is food banks there are now far more people i think 
like 8 million people slipped into poverty in the United States in December. Uh, that was sort of the, the round number. And so many people are just out of cash and they're unable to pay rent and they're unable to buy food. And so the food banks are seeing radical increases and so on. And so, you know, our, our response as a society right now is essentially, we don't know what to do with a big block of unemployed people. We don't, we don't have any system in mind at all that to provide a safety net or to channel their energy into something else because the economy isn't creating jobs. And, you know, at some point, typically in America, there will, it will enter some kind of crisis phase where we have to actually start to think it through. But like just the stimulus checks has been so traumatic from a congressional standpoint. Like, you know, we have one, one side wants one thing and the other side wants the other thing. And then it just gets gridlocked and nothing happens for months and months while people legitimately really need some kind of relief or they, they get thrown out onto the street. And that, that is the, the restructuring or the rethinking of the economy that gets you thinking about universal basic income or something that lets people who are unemployed not become homeless. Except how do we pay for that? So, for example, in Asia, they're decades ahead of us. Uh, I think it's mandatory probably from a primary school for coding and basic robotics courses. Here in, in Canada, in Ontario, for example, a few you know high schools may offer something called a STEM program, science and technology, but it seems to me like we're really too late to the dance here. And so we're not going to have any comparative advantage in terms of building robots, programming robots. All of that is going to be overseas. We're not going to have the skilled workers. Therefore, we're not going to have a tax base. How are we going to pay for a universal income? It seems like we're on a collision course for societal breakdown. Right. It, it does seem that once automation starts impacting millions of jobs on a regular basis, we have no system in mind. You in Canada at least have the healthcare side of it figured out. Like you've you've found a way, like most developed countries, to provide basic healthcare services, and even not basic, but you know, advanced healthcare services to all your citizens, pretty much universally. Here in the United States, we haven't even figured that part out. But in that. Uh, there is a seed of of something because you have been able to make universal health care work. And in, for example, Singapore, they've figured out essentially how to provide universal housing to people. Pretty much every everyone in Singapore is living in government housing. And it it works really well. So it is possible to imagine that we can take pieces that are working around the world and try to knit them together into something that would let people live lives without necessarily having a job to support them. But in, in the current environment where you have this massive inequality where trillions of dollars are going to a few at the expense of the general population, that's going to have to get unwound. And as that gets unwound, you could imagine a source of funding in that, uh, in that transition. But it, I don't know how you do it in the United States with the, the people in government that we have today. Let's talk a little bit about the next level in terms of a threat from artificial intelligence. And you alluded to it a little earlier about Moore's Law and the increase in computing power. And where are we at now in terms of 
artificial intelligence. Occasionally we read these articles about some computer beating a chess master and things like that, but th this is not really practical. People aren't thinking about artificial intelligence in terms of being a, a threat yet, but how close are we to it becoming a concern? Well, this is a, a great area to explore, and you're exactly right when you mention Moore's Law, because the, you know, the idea behind Moore's Law is that you can exponentially increase the number of transistors in a pretty short time frame. And we've seen it occurring for decades. It's, it's not like, you know, someone predicted this five years ago. This has been a thing that's been in motion since the 70s. So the, the cost of the transistors and the number of transistors that are available for computing just grows and grows and grows. And you can kind of think of this like the human brain, its capabilities are the target. You know, it's sort of the same way if we went back to the late 1800s, people would look at birds and they saw them flying and therefore they knew that flight was possible. You know, they just had to figure out a configuration that would allow human beings to do it and the Wright brothers happened to be the first people to get that, that whole you know, problem solved. And then once it was solved, you know, pretty soon we have aluminum airplanes with jet engines that can fly on transcontinental flights and that only took a couple of decades. So scientists look at the human brain and say, well, we know it's possible and we know in general terms how much computing power you need to recreate the human brain. And we are, with our supercomputers, getting at that level now. So first you need the computing power and then you need the algorithms that bring that computing power to life. So you mentioned chess playing, right? That's one aspect of human mental capability. You could replicate the way human beings do it. That would be a system and, and that would you know work. But the way that chess playing computers work now is nothing like the way human beings do it. And it's much more efficient and it's much better. That's why computers can beat human beings. So one path to getting to general intelligence is to just pick off these different things people do and have thousands of modules that together replicate the human brain. The other line of research is to say, well, let's just reverse engineer the way the brain works using neurons and synapses and so on, and let's just create a facsimile of the human brain running in these supercomputers that we have now, and that's a whole nother effort. And then there's just the effort of, let's try to code consciousness and run it on you know, a platform like Google, which has trillions of processors at its disposal, and, and create consciousness in that new way. So we have these multiple angles of attack to create consciousness. We now, we really are getting to the point where we can affordably own enough computing power to replicate the, the human brain's computing power and the, the pieces are just going to come together inevitably, sort of like the airplane did. You know, people are just going to push on it until they find the configuration that gives us a, a human brain in a box. And at that point, you, I, it's really unclear what's, what's going to go down as we reach that milestone. Years ago, I interviewed Hugo de Garris about an artificial brain, the creation of an artificial brain, and, and he gained notoriety, I guess in the 90s, for this belief that he had that there would be this cataclysmic war between the supporters and opponents of intelligent machines, which he believed 
would result in, in the death of billions before the end of the 21st century. Do you have any thoughts on Hugo de Garris's apocalyptic scenario? Well, I will say that that's the more common belief that, you know, if you, if you just look at the movies humans create or the books that humans write about this possibility, they tend to be apocalyptic. So like the Terminator movies come to mind where the robots gain sentience and then immediately want to exterminate all the humans for unclear reasons, <laughs> you know, but that's just where uh, our tendency is to focus. The, but the opposite side of it could be that a computer intelligence arises and it actually uh, becomes quite ethical. Like it formulates an ethical framework for itself and it, it starts to act within that ethical framework. And the thing that might lead us to believe that that would happen is because many of the most intelligent human beings and thoughtful people and most of the religions we've created and, you know, just a general human tendency is toward goodness. And so why would we expect that an artificial intelligence wouldn't have those same tendencies. And if that were to happen, it, and this artificial intelligence arises and it's sentient and conscious like a human is, and even if it's more powerful than us, you know, it might look at us and think, what can I do to really help these creatures? And things get so much better that there isn't a need for us humans to fight with each other, as you've painted, or for the artificial intelligence to have any ill will toward us either. And I, I happen to think that is a more, uh, you know, a more common outcome that might occur here. You know, we don't, Let's just take the example of dogs. Dogs are far less intelligent than human beings, but most people treat dogs pretty well. I mean, I know dogs who have a better lifestyle than I do. So it could be that this artificial intelligence arises. It is smarter than us, but it's able to look at the scenario and say, well, you guys, you've kind of messed up the environment. Let's get that fixed. And you have this problem with your economy. Let's get that fixed. And, you know, and it just works across and starts solving a set of problems that have been with us forever. And things get a lot better. We just don't know. Let's talk a little bit about Mars. <laughs> I love Mars. That would be great. Are we thinking in terms of terraforming Mars or is that just too pie in the sky? Is, is there a more practical way to uh, colonize the red planet? The, the idea of terraforming Mars has been around for 50 years. Maybe, you know, once we fully understood what Mars really was in terms of its climate and so on. And it makes sense. Um, but Terraforming is not a like flip a switch and suddenly it's warm and balmy and and there's plenty of water and oceans form and you know that's kind of the vision but that is not a flip a switch kind of thing that's a you know a, a centuries long process that would need to unfold and Mars has a particular problem in that. It lacks the magnetic field that protects the Earth's atmosphere. So it's hard for Mars to hold on to an atmosphere. So at least right now, the more common approach that people are thinking, and, and Elon Musk is really kind of the thought leader here, and it's more like we're going to build underground or we're going to do something with domes on the surface uh, another problem with Mars is you have a lot of cosmic radiation, and that might just force everything underground. But we're going to build some kind of structure and 
and basically just isolate ourselves from the environment and not worry about it and grow. Like Elon Musk has plainly said, I plan to put a million people on Mars in, and then you just have to pick the time frame. It kind of, kind of varies around <laughs> depending on, on the day, but he's, he's fully committed to putting the first people on Mars in just a few years. And that has been repeated multiple times. What kind of economic system or political system would you see unfolding on a red colony? That to me is the most interesting question about Mars because Elon Musk and a lot of other people have laid out how we would get there. And Musk, to his credit, has done that with a lot of specificity and is actually building hardware under the umbrella of his vision. So there is the act of getting us to Mars, and then there's the act of living on Mars in a, you know, in a safe way at scale, you know, with thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And then the part that no one seems to be talking about is, okay, what kind of government are these folks going to have, and what kind of economic system are these folks going to have? And, uh, you know, the laws, are we going to import them from Earth or are we going to make them up when we get there? And who makes the laws? And, you know, there's myriad decisions that that need to be made in order for a million person colony to have any hope of, you know, surviving without coming unglued in sort of the same way we see the United States. There's definitely some, <laughs> some cracks happening in the United States right now that are pretty uncomfortable. So you would like to think that if we're going to build a society on Mars, we could actually come up with a better political and government and economic system that would work for the million people living there since it's a blank sheet of paper, right? We can, we could in theory do anything on Mars. And that is so much fun to think about and, and to just explore the hundreds and hundreds of questions. And, you know, like the universal basic income that we were just talking about a few minutes ago, well, do you just wire that into the economy of Mars from the start and therefore it's not a question anymore or, uh, you know, what would the economic system look like? So I've written a whole book on on just exploring some of the questions. And some of them are really silly. And some of them, like, let me just give you an example. Are there going to be guns on Mars? You know, that that someone's going to have to decide that. It, you know, can anybody on Mars have a gun? Especially if you could shoot it and blow a hole in your, <laughs> your protective bubble, right? You And so... It, and it goes, if you just take that as your starting question, well, you know, well, that's interesting. Like, are you going to have pets on Mars? Why or why not? And who gets to decide? Right. Can right? you eat meat? <laughs> yeah. Any, uh, there's so many questions that, that on a blank sheet of paper, you would actually get to decide. But who's, who's going to decide and, and, and who's going to go to Mars and are they willing to live within that set of constraints, whatever the constraints are? It's so interesting. It's so much fun to think about. And that's kind of where the, the Mars book came from was uh, just going through that set of thought questions. And, and like, is a million people enough? You, you really need to, to create a whole self-sustaining ecosystem on Mars, and there's so many things you have to do to replicate Earth's uh, ecosystem. You know, like, like I want to make chips for computers on Mars. That alone might take 100,000 people just to recreate the ability to make chips. And, and if that's the case, you may need 10 million people on Mars in order to have any hope of this actually working. So 2004 was supposed to be the year of Mars. It wasn't, I guess, but what was the thinking in terms of 2004 being the year of Mars? Well, you know, we've, we've come at Mars from multiple angles ever since we landed on the moon. And it, 
it's really interesting to wonder if we had kept funding NASA, given the amount of momentum it had, what could NASA have started to do? Like, you know, big in-orbit space stations like we saw in the movie 2001, you know, with artificial gravity and people flying up there essentially like it's a business trip. You know, that's one possibility. An entire moon civilization could have happened. Uh, landing people on Mars, that would theoretically could have been happening in the 80s if if Mars, if NASA had that level of funding. So we, you know, there has been that effort. Then there was another effort to do a privately funded mission to Mars and to raise the money and push, you know, not millions of people, but hundreds or thousands of people onto Mars. That was another concept that came and went. And so we, I mean, it's very aspirational to think of getting humans on Mars now that we've, we've accomplished the moon, but it's just a much bigger problem and a much longer distance. And you know, as we've been discussing, there's a lot of stuff to figure out besides the technology side of it in order for it to work. You had a very different approach, the body-free approach. <laughs> Talk to me about that. <laughs> that. That is an approach. So uh, I did a book called The Day You Discard Your Body, which is about the idea you know, the, the classic idea of somehow being able to extract the human brain and uh, I don't know what the opposite of decanting is, but we want to cant it. We want to bottle the human brain separate from the body and then essentially plug it into either a robotic framework or into a completely virtual environment that that we start to see with the video games we have today. So the idea behind the, the body-free approach would be if you've discarded your body and you are a brain that's been in, encased in its own little micro-environment that keeps it alive and happy, then sending a mission to Mars <laughs> becomes almost trivial. I mean, by comparison, it's not trivial. But you're shipping much, much smaller packages for each human being with much, much lower food requirements. You can actually imagine providing all the radiation shielding you need for a, a rack full of, of brains and, and so on. So that piece was just exploring what it would, what it would mean if human beings have started discarding their bodies and we wanted to move uh, human beings to anywhere, Mars being the, you know, the first stop. Doomsday scenarios aside, Marshall, are you positive or pessimistic about the future? It really, it really comes down to, can humanity as a whole start to get its global act together, understand the several existential threat problems that we've created for ourselves and respond rationally to those in a way that derails some of the things. I mean, the, the most obvious of them being climate change, because we really have set ourselves on a path toward destruction. And we could we could stop that process if as a species we could get together and act because climate change it it's you know we use one term but that term is actually an umbrella for maybe 10 different effects it's not just global warming it's also like the rainforest completely collapsing and turning into deserts because they you know, they eventually overheat and they die off. And, and once you've killed off a rainforest, there's no bringing it back. You know, are we able to act before 
that kind of catastrophe happens. Sea level rise is another part of it. The, you know, it's, there's just so many things. And if, if we could sit here, if you and I could sit here and look out into the future and think, oh, yeah, humanity is going to get itself together. We are going to immediately stop burning fossil fuels. We are going to immediately start extracting carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere and start to put back together a few of the other things that are involved here, like like we need to actually actively start refreezing the Arctic as part of that process. If we could sit here and say, oh yeah, humanity is going to get itself together and it's going to stop burning fossil fuels in five years, that would be a reason for optimism. But I don't know, when you and I sit here and look at humanity and think about the future, do we see humanity agreeing to stop burning fossil fuels, you know, let's just say in five or 10 years, or do we think we're going to be burning fossil fuels in 2050? And, and by then it's just, you know, it's game over. What, what do you think? Let's, let's have a conversation. Well, I have a radically different tact on that. I mean, I, first of all, I, oh, think, nice. I think fossil fuels are here for a long time, 50, a hundred years. I think innovation is the key. I think a, a top-down approach of saying we're going to shut down huge energy sectors. I mean, talk about a massive displacement. We talked about robotics. That's another one. What are you going to do right. with pharmaceuticals, with, with agriculture? All of these things are dependent on fossil fuels. You want to build wind turbines and solar panels? How do you do that without fossil fuels? Solar panels. Recent studies show they're far more environmentally destructive than a nuclear power plant because of leakage and all these mm. toxins that are going into the soil. And it requires a lot of acreage. Right. So that's clearly, that's not the answer. If we could get people in the green movement to embrace nuclear, at least as a stopgap measure, then maybe we could seriously have a conversation about getting away from fossil fuels. But to say that we're going to flip a switch and we're going to live on the sun and the wind is just not a practical answer. People are going to freeze in the dark. <laughs> and a lot of people agree with you on that. That there, you know, the the whole nuclear thing is such an, an interesting, you know, sub piece of this whole thing because again, human beings can't agree. Uh, you know, there's a whole thing in the industry around small modular reactors, which yes. are trying to shrink the technology down and make it safer and make it more portable. And and there's a lot to love there, but there are enough people out and about that those don't have a chance. You know, the, the not in my backyard thing could completely derail it. And, and I agree with you. It, that is a great stopgap measure because it has no emissions and we know it works, and it doesn't come and go like solar does. Uh, a lot to like about small modular reactors, except there are so many people who hear the word nuclear and immediately uh, turn off. It, it's hard to say. So that, I mean, if I, you ask me a question, am I an optimist or a pessimist? Given what I see today, I don't know that humanity can get its act together. I don't see a lot of evidence suggesting, like just just that point you brought up. Nuclear would solve a lot of problems, and we know it works, and it's inexpensive, and blah, you know, all that stuff. But can we get humanity to agree? And I just don't. I just don't see how we're going to get humanity to that point of agreement. That is the, uh, the billion dollar or the trillion dollar question. <laughs> it uh, is. That's a great point, too. Because if we don't, like when you say trillion dollars, that's not an exaggeration. It's probably an underestimate. Because if we don't, and Greenland melts, for example, Greenland melts, the oceans rise 20 feet just from Greenland. And you've have you lose so many major cities in that process that a you know a trillion dollar doesn't even start to cover the cost. It's just spectacularly 
wrong-headed of us to to not change course. But I don't see how we change course. How do we get a copy of Doomsday so it, we at least can prepare? <laughs> so that's the idea behind the book. It's called the Doomsday Book. It's available you know, at any bookseller, pretty much. Amazon has it and Barnes & Noble and independent booksellers. It's a, you know, it was uh, done by Sterling Press. And the idea behind it is to look at the 25 big kind of existential threats humanity faces and then to talk about possible solutions if we could get our act together so that we could have those conversations. Like, how do we solve climate change? How how do we protect ourselves from asteroid strikes? How, you know, what about the terrorism threat? Those, you know, those kinds of questions to so just lay them all out so we can see the whole deck of cards we're dealing with and then to talk about the science of them, like how, are, what, what's actually happening and then what would we do if we wanted to mitigate or derail or solve these problems? Somehow, maybe wishful thinking, I think we're just going to, as we have always done since we climbed out of the trees, we, we, find a way, we find a way to muddle our way through. I would love to see us rise to a higher level where rather than muddling, we actually plan our way through and behave rationally. I, but either way, uh, I think you're right. We will, we will survive. It's just, can we... Can we survive in style, or are we going to be really suffering as we do the survival? Marshall, I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much for hanging out. Uh, you, you're a wonderful host. The questions and, and the conversation has been fantastic, so thank you. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>